Thank you again for the these four sessions. They have been edifying. They've been encouraging. Um, I'm sure that you can all say the same as well. Uh, real, real quick, uh, there is a basket over here. There was an individual who asked, "What what can we do to to give?" This was a free conference. Uh, we wanted to have it to be a blessing first and foremost to our church because we thought it would be helpful for us in our doctrine of God. Um, and then to any other other churches in Bakersfield who wanted to to participate and and come, we wanted to make that free. But obviously none of these things were free. Um, but if you would like to give, there's a basket here. Feel free to do that. Um, Pastor Sam, there's a number of questions. First, let's start with tell us how the Lord brought you to saving faith. I was blessed with growing up in a, uh, a Christian family. My father is a pastor, and so I grew up in a Reformed Baptist home, Reformed Baptist churches, but obviously that does not make you a Christian, and so I heard the gospel from the youngest of ages, and it was not until about the middle of high school, my sophomore year, when uh, I really came to saving faith, and I cannot, I cannot pinpoint some drastic moment where the Lord changed my life because the Lord had kept me from... Um, drastic sins, and yet I had a lot of um, self-righteousness in many ways, uh, but not not quite in the way that one might think. So let me explain what I mean. When I was about 14 or 15, um, my brother-in-law, I was hanging out with him, and he said to me, hey, Sam, you know, why haven't you been baptized? And, and I said, well, you know, I just, uh, I, I don't think that I don't think I'm really like good enough for you know for that. I, I just don't. I keep seeing sins in my life, and I just don't think that that you know that I I could really do that in in so many words. Which, having been in a leader in our youth group for quite some time, I've heard that response from many young people. And honestly, it's a cop out. Uh, you're you're avoiding the question in many ways. Um, but he called me on it. And he read Romans 10.9, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you will be saved. And he said to me, do you believe that? Because I was, I was putting all of the focus on myself. I'm this, I'm that, and the other thing. And he was putting the focus on, on Christ and the gospel. And as soon as he read that verse, I knew, insta- I, I knew instantly the problem, and I knew instantly, I do believe that. I, I really do. And I said, yes, I do believe that. And he said, well, then, <laughs> you know. And, and from that point forward, uh, I soon after applied for baptism and was baptized. And so I don't think that that was a moment of conversion necessarily because I believed those things before he pointed me to them. But it was in that moment <clears throat> that I gained a, a clear understanding of the gospel and that I needed to stop talking about myself in terms of getting in the way of salvation. Like, of course you're a sinner, Sam. Of course you're not good enough. You know, that's precisely why you trust in Jesus Christ and go to him. And so it was just my own foolishness or my own uh, who knows what that was keeping me back from the past. But from that point forward, uh, the only way I could not apply for baptism at that, at that point was, was if I retracted the fact that I believed in that verse, that I believed in the gospel. But I wasn't going to do that. I did believe in the gospel, and so I wanted to be baptized. And so I had already understood the gospel, but I understood it more clearly at that point uh, as my brother-in-law made it clear it's not about me. It's about Jesus Christ saving me from my own sins. And that, that was 
really the beginning point of my Christian life, although I think that the Lord had changed my heart previously to already understand and believe those things, but now to profess it clearly uh, from that point forward. You are speaking to an unbeliever, and you have about 30 seconds to share the gospel. How would you share the gospel in about 30 seconds? Well, uh, this saying is faithful and true that Jesus Christ died for sinners, of, of which I am the chief. You know, to paraphrase Paul, you can quickly say, Jesus is a savior. I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm saved in him. You can be saved too if you trust in him. And if that gives you a greater opportunity for further discussion, then you can go from there. So that would be my quick answer of <clears throat> one verse from the scriptures declares Christ the savior, me a sinner, or that person a sinner, and can, well, what do you mean by that? You know, can, can push forward for more. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? I think that's a great answer. <laughs> I'm not the one uh, being asked the questions. Uh, brother, what, what would you or what advice would you give to new believers and their, their desire to study? What, would you, what, what doctrines, what scriptures, what books of the Bible, what books in general would you point them to as a place to begin? Number one would be the catechism. The catechisms are so useful for learning because... They've set it up for learning questions and answers. It's designed to teach. And it's designed to teach in the most concise and, and memorable way. And so in terms of teaching tools, nothing will teach you the faith better than a catechism. And a catechism will cover all of the spectrums of theology, uh, or the spectrum of theology, I ought to say. And so whether it's... Let me, let me put it this way. I, I drive my son to school every morning... And not all of those mornings, but several times a week, I catechize him as we're driving, asking him questions. It's the, the children's Baptist uh, catechism. And I love it for myself. <laughs> you know, I, I remember the questions that I question him on. We're both learning those things. My father catechized me when I was younger. Uh, I didn't learn the entire catechism from him, but it was a part of our family devotions for a time. And that was very useful. But going through this again with my son, even designed to teach a child it, it's it's teaching me myself and so if you can move if you have to start with that that's not a bad thing start with that and then if you can move up to the the, the shorter catechism or, or the baptist catechism or the larger catechism um or an orthodox catechism the baptist version of the heidelberg catechism those would be great tools another way would be reading through the confession of faith uh, it's like the catechism, but with more meat on the bones. Covers the spectrum of theology, but explained in more detail. Covers more things. And then, for reading books, um, I think that some of my personal favorites would be Thomas Brooks' Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, uh, Jeremiah Burroughs' Gospel Remission. In that book, he has rules for enjoying the forgiveness of sins. <laughs> and it's really, really wonderful Really wonderful. Um, Pilgrim's Progress. Read Pilgrim's Progress. You, it will minister to your soul. Um, also, so yeah, the, the Confession, the Catechism, and those three books will give you a lot of systematic knowledge as well as personal applications and um, practical knowledge. Those, that's a really good starting point. Uh, there, are, there are others that we could point to, but... If you, if you chewed on those things, you would be doing very well. Precious Remedies helps you in fighting against sin. Gospel Remission encourages you in your assurance and perseverance and faith. Pilgrim's Progress is just a, 
a wonderful way to learn about the Christian life. Uh, and then the catechisms and confessions give you, let's call it head knowledge, but it's designed to be practical as well. What about a book in the Bible? Where would you, where would you point a new believer uh, to in the Bible? Say, start here. First John would be a very good place to start because it's going to constantly point you to the law and the gospel, mm-hmm. uh, God's commands and God's promises. Mm-hmm. Um, he'll tell you, you know, don't deny that you're a sinner. Mm-hmm. Go, to, go to Jesus when you sin. He's our advocate. He's our faithful high priest. Um, he'll, he'll, you know, he, he's the one through whom we, we find forgiveness. And also the children of God obey the commandments of God. They love the people of God and they believe the things of God. John goes through those things over and over in the book. And so it, it's really designed to help a church or an individual believer to grow. Uh, and it helps out believers of all spiritual maturity levels. First John would be a great, a great way to start. It's very simple but profound at the same time. I, I agree with you on all points. Uh, my wife and I are catechizing our son right now through the, the Baptist Confession or Catechism. And we're on question five right now, and we've been going through it for a few months. But just the, the repetition and then even for myself seeing the scripture oh, yeah. references has been really, really helpful. Um, Sam, can you, can you explain a modern view of impassibility versus the classical view of impassibility? Sure. Well, one of the modern views would be that God, in his sovereignty, can will changes in himself. So God sovereignly chooses to become what he was not. He takes on properties um, in a controlled manner. It's basically controlled passability. They want to say... You can trust God because nothing's ever out of control like our passions and affections can be. But God does choose to take on things that he did not have before. So God becomes this or becomes that, uh, etc., things like that. And so what they're really doing is putting sovereignty over other attributes of God. But in so doing, they lose eternity, they lose infinity, they lose simplicity. Uh, all, all of these foundational doctrines of God, you can't pull on that thread without unraveling the whole thing, honestly. And so that's one version is sort of a self-controlled, sovereign passability, which they would, they would, they like to call it impassibility because they see it as God still maintaining everything within his, his character and his perfections, they would say. And so he's not, he's not becoming anything other than God, they would say, but we're saying they're putting him in time and space and any change implies a cause. God is, is causing changes within, his, within himself. You can't add being to him. You cannot subtract being to him. You're making him composed of parts now. Parts of him are being actualized that were not actualized before. Parts of him are being deactualized or somehow changed. Things like that. It just, it just doesn't work. You can sort of see, you can sort of commend the desire that they have to say, well, the scriptures say that God was provoked to wrath. And he control, in the sovereign controlled way, moved himself to wrath. Well, that still puts him within time and space and still has him changing based on creatures, even if he chooses to make the change. It, it just doesn't, it's not accurate and faithful according to the passages of Scripture that declare him as not changing in any way and being incapable of changing. That's why in, the, in our definition, we said that God cannot be acted upon by anything outside of himself or within himself. We didn't spend a lot of time talking about that, but that's why that's in the definition, is there's nothing within God that acts upon himself to change himself in some way. Uh, so that would be a, a modern view of impassibility that, that we would see as being in error and with, with possible potential um, 
connections that lead towards heresy if you took it to its furthest logical extent. The people that hold that view are not taking it to that extent, but we would say that it clearly leads that way. And there are theologians, open theists, who have said that they arrived at their open theist position because they started by removing the doctrine of divine impassibility. And that led them, uh, I could give you chapter and verse, this is not just me making stuff up, I could give you chapter and verse if I had uh, books in front of me to, to say those things. Uh, but impassibility was the door that opened the way to open theism, which says that God is essentially developing and changing as the world and history progresses. He's along for the ride, so to speak. Uh, and we would want to guard against that and say that a controlled or sovereign passability is not impassibility. It's, it's passability. What are the extreme ends, if you will, uh, of impassibility? Meaning, can divine impassibility be taken to an unhealthy extreme, like a hyper-Calvinism? Can there be a hyper divine impassibility? Certainly. Um, I, I mentioned in the lessons that we can, we can err, we can fall in one ditch on one side by saying, uh, God was provoked to wrath, God can't be provoked to wrath, so that means nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that would be empty, but we tried to say that God's wrath or his anger is the, the threat of his justice to creatures, uh, an invincible, um, unchangeable justice, which is so perfect that it's worse than a human getting angry and a human being provoked to something. It, it's beyond that. And so we've seen true positive communications, affirmations in those statements. But you could, if you just said, well, God's not like man, so nothing in man uh, we can say of, of God. You know, like the philosophers who said God has no mercy because he cannot have heart misery. And then the theologians would say, that's because you're putting human mercy on God. Let's talk about divine mercy. So if you do not properly put something on the creature and on God, or if you, you just take something from the creature and put it on God, you can go on to an extreme and say God's impassable, so he doesn't have love at all. He doesn't have mercy at all. He doesn't have anger at all. Uh, that would be an extreme, possibly, that someone could take, but would not be accurate. Are we guilty of, of becoming more philosophical than theological? when we are embracing the, the doctrine of impassibility, since we borrow so much from, from philosophy? Only if you think that the things we've said today were not grounded in scripture. Yeah. It, anything could be tainted by philosophy. Yeah. The question is, has it been? Mm-hmm. And so I've tried to give scripture verses uh, to back up the things that we've been saying beginning with something as simple as Genesis 1-1 or the divine name, I am that I am, to say there are true consequences, there are true connections, doctrinal connections that flow out from these foundational truths. And so have we done that? Well, I would leave it to you to judge if we've, if we've based our, our commitments or our doctrines on Scripture or not. Uh, and if you think not, well, you know, you'd have to use the Scriptures to prove otherwise, and that's a, a valid course of action. You want to be faithful to the Scriptures, but I think that we have been. Yeah. Does God's felicity change within himself when we sin? No. God is eternally blessed. He cannot be acted upon. And so, because of our sin, God may feel us, or not feel, God may cause us to feel his displeasure. Mm-hmm. He may cause us to feel chest, to experience chastisement. But God does not change. We do not cause his heart to grieve or something like that. That, that cannot happen to God. Very good. When the word says, God walked with Adam... Was he like a man, or was he a spirit, or was it written this way so that we could understand that God was present? Well, there are many um, theophanies in the scriptures. Theophany, God appearing or God manifesting. 
And whenever God manifests himself, you have to, just like he manifests himself in the word written, you have to scrub the revelation from creaturely imperfections or creaturely aspects and not put those into the being of God himself. And so you don't take the manifestation of God visibly given to man and, and think that God's being has somehow been confined in that manifestation. You know, God was truly in the temple in a brilliant glory, but he was not contained therein. And his true majesty and glory is so great that you, you could not even perceive it or comprehend it, um, or you would be destroyed. You would have to be a God to perceive God in, in the infinity of his glory. So you, you have to be careful using theophanies to not to trap God in the theophany and think that he has therefore been fully confined or, or um, limited or revealed in that theophany. It may communicate true things, uh, but not fully communicate who and what God is. And we have to kind of treat each one independently. Okay, what does this mean? What does this tell us? Very good. Ephesians 2 says, We were once children of wrath, but now since we have, been placed, since we have placed our faith in Christ... God now looks at us as his child or children. Does that mean God's affections toward us change once we place our faith in Christ? Kind of answered that already. Yeah, we, we looked at that in our last lesson. You have one perfection of justice. It condemns the wicked. The same perfection of justice justifies the righteous or approves the righteous. Mm. And so when we change from wicked to righteous, God does not change, but we change relative to him. And we, we call his condemnation and his salvation of us we call them by different things but they come from the same perfection there's no change in god there Very good can you explain the term decree and how that relates to the immutability and passability doctrines yeah decree is god's uh purpose to create all things and have them unfold on his works of of uh creation and providence and so it's his his will to, to cause all things to be and to unfold according to his decree uh, his plan, a plan is another word that we could use for that. And so if God has decreed, I will make Saul king, and I will remove Saul from the kingship, then when we see that change in action, it's not because God in time changed his mind. In other words, it's not because he was passable, but because it's the successive unfolding of his plan that was made before the foundations of the world. Uh, and so... it. it this is sort of a poor analogy, but an analogy. If you read uh, chapter one of a book and chapter two of a novel, um, and the author has set up one thing and then it fails and the, the narrative goes a different way, is it because the author changed their mind uh, from chapter one to chapter two? You know, it's like, no, I'm reading this now in succession, something that was given to me already complete, but I'm going through it page by page. I didn't know it was coming in chapter two, but the author did. Uh, Things like that. So that's sort of a, a broken analogy, but it helps us to understand how we go through things successively. God planned them outside of time, but they unfold in time. That's good. The Lord Jesus is God. When he was here on earth, he went through a range of emotions from anger, clearing out the temple, to sadness, weeping over Jerusalem, to pain, agony at the cross. How do we explain this in light of the change that God does not experience? Absolutely. Great question. And it's something that I mentioned, but we didn't have a lot of time to go into. Um, what we said, we, we set up all the pieces to answer this question. According to his human nature, Jesus has parts, body and soul, faculties in those parts, mind and will, and so he has true human affections. He has true uh, love and hate and joy and sorrow and, and mercy and wrath and all those things, but he has them without sin. 
So he's very much like Adam in the garden before the fall. Adam had a proper mind. He had an obedient will, all sinless. Jesus has those things perfectly and, and confirmed. He's one for us, that perfect human nature that we get to participate in partially now and fully in eternity. But Jesus, in his human nature, truly experiences all the things that we experience, hunger and pain and, and desires and things like that. And there's no reason to deny that. We ought to affirm it. To deny the trueness of his human nature is heresy, actually. But to confuse and conflate the human nature with the divine nature is also heresy. Uh, and so the, the confession talks about the union of the natures and the one person taking place without conversion. Divine doesn't change into human. Human doesn't change into divine. Without composition, they're not combined. He's not part human, part divine. And without confusion, he's not sometimes divine, sometimes human, changing from one to the other. He is two natures united in one person in a mystery that transcends our reason and comprehension, but is truly one, uh, one divine person with, with two natures. And there was no change when the incarnation took place because the divine nature remains unchanged. But the human nature goes from, uncre- from non-existent to existent. Just like in creation, God exists, but then there's a change in creation. It doesn't exist and then it exists. God doesn't change, but creation, non-existent, then existent. So also in the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity exists. Incarnate nature, not created, now created. And so all of the changes are in creation or in the creature uh, and in the, the human nature of Jesus Christ. Anybody confused about that? But the scriptures tell us that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yeah. Jesus. So he is immutably confirmed in a perfect human nature. Yeah. So we don't have to worry. If Jesus is passable, uh, if Jesus is, has affections, you know, does, does that mean that we can't trust him in his human nature? Well, no, not, not at all, because he is, has a glorified, he has one for us, a glorified human nature. And the, the union of the two natures guaranteed all along the success of the human nature, of, of the of Jesus Christ and his earthly mission. And so even then and now, we can give him absolute and full trust and confidence because he is the same yesterday and today and forever. Amen. Very good answer, brother. How do you explain to someone who says, well, there's a contradiction for Samuel. God repents, and then God says he does not repent or change his mind. Go yeah, ahead. I think that we've answered that question a few times in this series by saying, okay, look for either a, a divine perfection or human action. And we said God does not have repentance perfectly and eternally or things like that. So there's a connection in action. The way we describe human repentance is stop doing something, start doing something else. God stopped making Saul king. He started making David king. You know, the language is kind of messy, but you understand what I mean. He's, he's, something is being changed in time and space. Um, and you can call that repentance we just have such a hard time conceiving of repentance without passion, conceiving of repentance without grief of heart, without some kind of frustration of mind and things like that. But forget the emotional baggage. Think about the action of stopping one thing and doing another. And you can call that truly repentance uh, in the decree of God or in the plan of God unfolding. Uh, so it's a, a true description. It's, not, it's just in human language. What were the, the views of the reformers on the doctrine of impassibility? Well, to answer that question, I put together God Without Passions, a reader, which was 60 authors from the period of the Reformation and the century afterwards. Uh, so 60 authors and their confessions of faith, all designed to tell you. And what I presented today was built so much from their work. So what I presented today is what they taught. 
if you don't believe me, you can read the reader, and it will, it will confirm that to you uh, in detail uh, in 60 authors. Uh, this is an interesting question, I think. How would you explain this, or should you explain this doctrine to an Arminian? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it, it certainly affects that, because like we said today, how does this affect our preaching of the gospel? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, God's, God's will, his plan is irresistible. So you don't, it's not that we, well, this impacts it in a lot of ways. Remember when we talked about the effect of the fall on the human nature, our minds are darkened, the scriptures tell us. We believe lies and we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So what we know is corrupted and twisted and opposite. Our wills are enslaved to various passions of the flesh, to our nature, our sinful nature. And so to believe in Jesus, your mind must be changed, what you know must be changed, and your will must be changed. You must be made able to believe in Jesus. God must invincibly and sovereignly work upon you to change you so that you can go to him by faith. Uh, otherwise, the creature will never, will never move towards God if God does not bring him to himself. And so we have to preach the gospel in a way that, uh, that commands sinners to repent, trusting that God is the one who, by his power, will work through that command to bring about the change in the creature uh, that we are demanding. We cannot appeal to some power in the creature. You can make that decision. You can do it. We, we command them to do it, but trust that it's God's power that changes them to bring them to himself. Uh, and we tell them that, we, we assure them that they cannot lose their salvation because in Jesus Christ you are invincibly just. God must declare you righteous unless somehow Jesus loses you. And if Jesus won't lose you, you cannot be declared unrighteous. God the Father, the perfection of his justice, must declare you righteous. There's no way you can be lost from that or else the promises of the, of the new covenant have been annulled and destroyed, in which case God was not faithful. And if God was not faithful, he's not God. It's all, it all unravels if God's promises can be thwarted and undone because his promise of salvation, his promise of forgiveness of sins does not depend on us. It depends on his purpose to forgive us in Jesus Christ. And Jesus won't lose his people, you know, and the Father will make sure that that happens and the Holy Spirit is engaged as well. So unless you can overpower the Trinity, you will not lose your salvation. So the way you preach the gospel, the way you appeal to the creature, the way you assure the believer of salvation, all profoundly affects or intersects with an Arminian view of how we are saved and how we persevere in that salvation. Yeah, I heard, and, and you can uh, either affirm this or not, I, I was encouraged to hear, like Ian Hamilton say, when we talk about grace or when we talk about faith or even when we talk about God's impassibility, that, that we sometimes forget that it is God who is these things, that we don't elevate mercy, we don't elevate faith, that we don't elevate grace. We elevate the God of grace. We elevate the God of faith, and we elevate the God who does not change. Um, and this is something that should cause us to run to God, not necessarily to a doctrine per se, but run to God and understand that this is who our God is. Right. Uh, can we say that God has divine passions, or is it more accurate and safer to use divine perfection? 
I would strongly encourage the use of perfections and strongly discourage the use of the word passions mm. relative to God. Because as you define passions, they're motions towards or away from something depending on your mind and your will. And so none of those things are appropriate to speak of God uh, properly. Mm. And you can only use those words improperly to speak of God. Improper meaning it doesn't fit with the definition of God. It does not fit with who and what God is to, to speak of passions. And so I think that perfection gets at the fullness and the majesty of God's love. Whereas if you understand, here's the problem. The word passion in modern language often has a positive meaning, a, 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 an intensity, an intensity for good reasons. You know, I'm passionate for God. We know what people mean and we say that's a good thing. But if we're talking about the definitions we've been using, if we're using those definitions, if, if you say, I'm passionate for God, I'd say, okay, you're a creature. That's fine. That's good. You know, God is the object of your love and your hope and your joy and all those things. But God is not, he's impassable. And, to, and so to speak of passions in God doesn't make sense. Not to, not to mention the fact that in our confession we say God is without passions. So then to speak of God with passions contradicts the, the very faith that we confess, at least in terminology, even if you don't mean to contradict it in what you're saying. Mm. So I would say just stay away from that because it, it has so much baggage. Mm. Okay. Just two more, brother. Is Christ now omnipresent and also is the Son impassable? Well, is the divine nature omnipresent? Yes. Is the human nature of Christ omnipresent? No. Mm. Uh, is, is God the Son impassable according to his Divine nature, yes. According to his human nature, sort of. <laughs> Here's what I mean. You and I will be impassable, sort of. Uh, sometimes the reformers would speak of the impassibility of the resurrected body. The resurrected body will not be subject to decay and, co- and decomposition and, and uh, injury and harm. And so Jesus has a glorified body. You, you can't kill him. You know, you can't burn him up. You cannot destroy his body. His body is impassable. When we speak about the passion of Jesus Christ, we talk about the suffering of his body and his soul. His body and soul are not subject to suffering in a glorified state, and so we also will be impassable in body and soul. Uh, also, he is he has confirmed human nature in its human perfections. And so our love for God will not be subject to being taken away. Adam in the garden was just and righteous and his knowledge was good and pure and his will was obedient but he was able to be moved towards untruth towards um, objects that were not properly sorted you know will you surely die you will be wise like God he could be he was mutable he was good but mutable Jesus has given us a human nature that is good and immutable and so we will not cease to be creaturely we will not cease to be divine but we will be confirmed in perfect human love, in perfect human joy, in perfect human hope, and all those things. And so, in a human sense, we could say that we will become impassable or that Jesus is impassable in his human nature, but that's not denying the creaturely aspect of our love and our joy because our love and our joy will increase for eternity as we get to know an infinite God, as we learn more about him. Uh, And so... You know, God's love cannot be increased or decreased. It's, it's perfect. It's divine. Our love can be increased, but that won't be a bad thing in eternity. So is, is Jesus Christ impassable according to his human nature? 
Well, the body and soul cannot be harmed or destroyed. His affections are, are perfect. I mean, they always were perfect, but he has confirmed those perfections of the human nature for us. But we have a high priest who can sympathize with us because he's gone through everything even now. And so when we pray to Jesus, when we speak to him according to his human nature, he, he can sympathize with his people. The scriptures plainly tell us that. And if we, we would be contradicting the scriptures to deny that. And so I'm trying to qualify things by saying in some senses he's impassable, in other senses he's not because he, his human nature remains a human nature. Um, but it's different from ours. We impartially partake of that glorified human nature. We're born again with a resurrected new creation nature, but it's, it's not yet the fullness of what we will experience. God is sanctifying us, making, more ho- making us more holy according to that new nature. And after death, when we become perfect and, and for all eternity, then we will enjoy the fullness of what Jesus has won for us uh, in the resurrection. Good. Can we let God down? We can do that which could be called letting God down. But God is not therefore acted upon as though he is disappointed and and enters in a state of being of disappointment, whereas before he was not. And so it's kind of like saying, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Do not do that which is grievous to the Holy Spirit. As not to say that the Holy Spirit can be acted upon and moved to grief by us. So from a human perspective, we can let God down. We can sin, basically, but from a divine, from a divine, atemporal or eternal perspective, God can't be let down. We can let God down, but God can't let can't be let down. If that if that makes sense, we can do that which lets people down, but God is not let down as a result of that. Um, and He may cause us because we let God down. He may cause us to feel fatherly displeasure and chastisement. But he has not changed. He's causing us to be changed as we feel different effects of one simple cause. Praise God. Well, brother, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for for all of the the hard work and effort that you've placed. It has been greatly worth it for all of us. I think we've all been greatly encouraged. I've got one more question for you, which is how can we pray for you as we close? Sure. So, yes, as a family, as a pastor, as a student, I'd appreciate your prayers. You know, I need the Lord's help in all of those things, and I look for his blessing and his power to help me. Uh, so I'd appreciate your prayers in, in those areas. Well, let's close in prayer, shall we? Our Lord and God, we do thank you for this wonderful, wonderful two days of great teaching. We pray that you would bless Sam, bless his wife, give her strength, Lord, as she she battles this lupus. We pray that you would give her comfort. Help them both, Lord, to continue to trust in you. And thank you, Lord, for giving them strength. And thank you for bringing her here this week. We pray for Brother Sam that you would protect him as he marches forward in the ministry. That you would continue to use him, Lord, for your glory and for your honor. We pray, God, that as he preaches both in Spanish and English, that your people would be strengthened and edified. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to use him to to bring others, Lord, to the faith. God, we thank you for the the great responsibility that you've given him, Lord, in advancing his education. We pray, Lord, that all things would go well as the board is reviewing his dissertation and that we would soon call him, Lord willing, we would call him Dr. Sam Rannanan. We thank you, Father, for this brother. We pray that you continue to, again, use him for your glory and for your honor. Be with us now as we... 
depart and go on our way. Prepare us also, Lord, for, for your day of worship tomorrow. We thank you for all this in Christ's name we pray. Amen.